what is so attractive is, you know, people think at first it's the price point. The price point's the first thing that gets you looking at those markets, but that, it's actually really the landlord tenant relations in those provinces. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larvey. Welcome back. It's Sarah Larby. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? I have a great guest today, Jacob Perez, who's a real estate investor as well as a mortgage broker. And we talk about mitigating risks when investing in real estate, rates and inflation, and a lot more as well as where to invest throughout Canada and why. So if uh, you're looking for specific ideas, this is going to be a great show for that. And Jacob is a mortgage broker. He serves Canada wide and he also is a successful real estate investor. So I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. And if you are interested, there's a few spots left for our health, wealth, time for self retreats which is an awesome investing retreat that we are doing at the resorts that we are building that is going to be in August. And that is August 9th, 10th, and 11th. And everything is included. Everything is all inclusive. We're going to do some really awesome things. There's going to be some boat rides. There's going to be some great speakers. Food is included. Drinks are included. Activities are included on the resort as well as accommodation. So if you are interested, send me a message on Instagram at investor Sarah Larby, and I can send you the link so you can get more details, or you can email me, Sarah at sarahlarby.com. I hope that you guys enjoy the podcast today, and don't forget to leave a rating and review. See you soon. Jacob, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. You are a well-known mortgage broker in the industry. What areas do you cover? Uh, well, really, we cover all across Canada, specialized in Ontario. That's when we're going to have the kind of like the most vast array of lending options. But we definitely do transactions in BC, Quebec, New Brunswick, kind of wherever the investors are running. But kind of the difference is when we're doing mortgages in other provinces, we have less lender options that we can work with, essentially. Okay, awesome. And now you are also an investor. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your investing strategy and, uh, and, and what it is that you do from an investing standpoint? Yeah. So I think like most people, my investment strategy seems to pivot deal to deal. So I'll have one strategy, either the market makes it so that strategy doesn't work in a specific city or, you know, I, I get shiny eyes. I want to try something new or things like that. So for me, it's been mainly the Burr strategy in Hamilton, Ontario. I've been doing the single family to duplex conversions there. Um, and then I've done bigger projects outside of Hamilton. So I'll chase cash flow in markets like Sarnia, where I bought a townhouse complex of eight townhomes for a really good deal. And I bought a few fourplexes out in Sarnia, as well as Port Colborne, Ontario. So I'll go into some of these like, you know, little tougher cities, right, with maybe a tougher tenant profile. Um, if it means that you have large cash flow producers, and that helps stabilize you if you want to take on some bigger equity appreciation projects in cities that are kind of closer to the GTA. All right, awesome. I, uh, I, I think that there's some, some great opportunities and there's different strategies that could work really well, you know, and anywhere really across Canada, you just have to, you just have to know, are you investing for cash flow, for appreciation, for, you know, stability and, and make sure that the fundamentals are there. But one of the things I think that we can maybe start with is you mentioned that obviously you cover country to country and we have listeners, you know, across Canada and, and some out of Canada as well. Let's just say somebody is, is wanting to invest in a different province. So let's start with Ontario first. You've got somebody that lives in Ontario and they want to invest anywhere else in Canada. What are some things to keep in mind or that, you know, the listeners should be aware of before doing that? 
So a lot of the stuff is going to be the same, but there's going to be some little nuances province to province. So that's why you're going to want to network with investors in those specific provinces, but I'll give you a few. So let's say, for example, you came to a mortgage broker in Ontario. We'd say, yep, we can do your refinance in British Columbia or in Quebec or in New Brunswick, wherever it may be. And lending guidelines are going to be the same. So if you're working with TD, Scotiabank, what have you, they're going to have the same underwriting criteria province to province. Now, where they might have a different risk profile is they might say, you know what? in the province of Alberta, we only allow our clients to have three rental properties. Whereas in Ontario, they'll allow us to have like eight or 10 rental properties. That's because they have a bigger, like a tighter risk threshold in certain provinces based on the economies, you know, oil, there's a lot of fluctuation in Alberta, things like that. Um, the other thing is just understanding the offer process and how things work. So if you look at a place like Quebec, where we've done a lot of deals as well, Pretty much every deal in Quebec is very different than Ontario. They have conditional periods on pretty much all their offers. And the way their conditional periods work is that they actually need a document from the lender that says your mortgage is complete before you're allowed to waive the conditions. So whereas we might say here in Ontario, yep, you can waive conditions. We know you'll be approved or you are approved. In Quebec, you need to be approved every single thing signed off on appraisal, your pay stubs verified, you sign the documentation and then they'll actually produce you a letter that says, hey, you're pre-approved and that's what allows you to waive conditions. So that process is very foreign to us in Ontario. We're used to like, go, 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 you know, you're not allowed to have a condition. So as long as you're aware of that kind of stuff, you can put yourself in a position where, you know, you're going to take care of it so you can, you know, close on your transaction, whatever it may be. So, you know, I don't think we've ever actually talked about Quebec and I know that there are some people in Montreal listening right now and that sounds really interesting because, okay, so you're saying we, we make an offer, we can have a condition period that's undetermined and, and then essentially when the lender says, or it's determined on financing and correct me if I'm wrong, cause I have no idea how it works out there. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm originally from, from uh, Quebec, <laughs> so I can mm -hmm. say that, but they are backwards in, in a lot of things. Right. So, so you're making an offer and you're making it conditional on financing and then it could last 10 days, 20 days. Like what's, what's a typical turnaround? Yeah, typically about 10 business days. That's what we've seen on a lot of our deals. And we found this out the hard way. You know, we had a client who said, yeah, we, you know, we can approve you in Quebec. And then we said, yep, waive your conditions. And they said, they're from Ontario as well. They're like, well, my realtor says I need something from you. And we're like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, we've done thousands of deals with Scotiabank. They don't give you any kind of letter. But then when we were dealing with a Quebec underwriter, it's like, oh, they do get this letter. We've never seen this before. So really it's, you have an approval, but that approval is typically conditional. And then you just need to kind of satisfy those conditions within your window. But the problem is that in Ontario, you might be buying an investment. You might have down payment funds coming from overseas and you know, you're waiting a month for those to clear into your bank account. In Quebec, you kind of have to have all your ducks in a row because you're going to have to satisfy that in advance. Um, so it's just something to know, but typically it's been two weeks on almost every deal we've done. Okay. So it's normal to have conditions in Montreal or in anywhere mm -hmm. in that province. And it's not, you know, like they're going to necessarily take the, a cash offer. Like, are there cash offers that, that are, you know, I don't know if you, if you're. I would imagine. So I would imagine, cause I asked about this, I said, well, you know, who's to say I'm even getting financing, who's to say what source of financing I'm getting. Right. But typically it's like the last you want to verify the bank statements if you're buying it cash as well. So there's a lot of due diligence. Um, and I think it's actually great for the buyers, but I do wonder for the sellers, how many deals get walked away from if you're able to get conditional period and all these deals. Right. Mm -hmm. And that could uh, be a little bit, um, that could allude to kind of why that Montreal market hasn't shot up quite as fast as, as places in GTA and things like that. I know obviously it's had a lot of growth, but that probably slows the growth because the, the transactions can't move as fast with all these conditional periods. 
That's interesting. And what about from a, you know, I know, I know you're not a lawyer, but you probably deal with them. Is it a notary there? And like, I think that works a little different that you don't know who is actually doing it until the, like I heard something along those lines. You know, I don't know if there's any insight or anything you can shed some light on. Yeah, so you need a you need a notary in Quebec to do your transaction. So um, we've had a few where you know I can't say I know the process perfectly, but we did have situations specifically where there wasn't even the option to use an Ontario-based lawyer as your representation. Like we had clients who actually had to fly into Quebec to close off these deals, kind of thing. So they use notary. Basically, the main thing is that that could be a little bit um, less expensive than using a lawyer. So there's probably some benefits associated with it as well, but I'm not the, the expert for sure on the legal matters. Okay. All right. Let's, let's, let's move away from Quebec and, and maybe just go to like Atlantic Canada, anything out there that we should be aware of? So nothing we've run into. Uh, we've done a lot of deals in New Brunswick. This is one of these markets that are growing. And this is a cool thing about working with so many different investors. We get to see, you know, where the investors are moving, right? A couple of years ago, it was Windsor. And then these last couple of years, it's been Sudbury. This has been one of the markets booming, right? And now we're seeing this St. John, New Brunswick, Moncton, New Brunswick, all these different kind of Eastern Canada places that are growing. So New Brunswick's been pretty much the exact same approval process. Nothing, we've, we haven't come across anything that's different than Ontario at this point, right? Now, we haven't done any commercial transactions out there. So some things you might expect is that, you know, you might have, uh, you know, smaller loan to values in these kind of smaller regions. You know, one thing to check anytime you're investing, if you're doing commercial loans or you need access to alternative lending is what is population size. Usually if the population size is like less than 20,000, lenders pull back a little bit. You know, they, they adjust their risk profile in association with that. So I think um, as long as you're kind of in the city centers and things like that, you can expect, you know, most of the same what you see in Ontario. Okay. Now, do you also do any, like, you know, any work with like, if somebody's in BC and they want to invest in New, New Brunswick as an example, like, do, and, and it doesn't touch Ontario, is that something you can also do? Yeah, absolutely. I think the main thing is that sometimes lenders will just simply ask, why are they working with you? <laughs> How did this connection come about, right? To make sure that there's nothing sketchy, potentially. Like, they're right. always looking at things from risk perspective, from what could be wrong here perspective. So, you know, I did a couple of transactions for a client who was based out of Edmonton. And it was like, you know, how did you guys get connected? It's like, this is my friend from high school. <laughs> so that's why I connected with you, right? So right. that's something. And I think, you know, as we see more work remote, uh, more work from home, you know, lenders are starting to have a bigger appetite for certain things. You know, everyone kind of operates under the mindset that lenders just get tighter and tighter over time. And, and that's often the case for several different things. But we have seen things happen with a few banks where they've gotten uh, more lenient with rental properties in the last year. So we actually had some of the opposite, right? They're adjusting to the market a little bit. We're seeing a lot of people where they're foregoing the primary residence and they're just going the rental property route. That's a lot more attractive for a lot of people because they feel like it's a smaller commitment. I don't want to commit to paying bills every single month, but I can commit to making a cash flow every month. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when it comes to the lending environment, we're going to see more and more changes. The one segment we haven't seen that change with, that I think will be the next one is Airbnb. And there's so much short-term rental. There's so much people having success with cottage rentals, things like that. There aren't really, there isn't really like an amazing commercial product out there right now that accommodates those. I would imagine that's coming in the next year or so, just with how many people are knocking on the door trying to find a product like that. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, just want to take a quick moment and introduce you to a key member of my power team. Dylan Suter is my realtor who's been working very hard to find me amazing deals and Dylan, I'm a big proponent in working with realtors 
that are investors. And Dylan is truly an investor. Welcome, Dylan. And thank you so much for being a sponsor. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I want to first thank you for having us as a sponsor. We're really grateful to be working with you and all of the support you've given us over the past couple of years. So thank you so much for that. And our focus as Elevation Realty is to focus our attention primarily on real estate investors that are looking to replace their active income with a passive income and go enjoy what they like most, such as time with the family or up at the cottage, whatever it may be. So what we do is we focus our attention on creating a plan specific for each client, whether that is something they want to have five properties in five years and be able to sit on them for 10 years and then sell them and retire on the the equity. Or if they're looking to scale their portfolio and retire in the next 12 months, we can look at doing that as well through joint ventures or Airbnb short-term rentals. We can talk through buildings, buy, renovate, refinance, single family purchases, and the list goes on. That's awesome. Now, Dylan, if people wanted to reach out and get help from you, where can they go? They can check us out online at www.elevationrealty.ca, E-L-E-V-A-T-I-O-N, realty.ca, or they can email us at info at elevationrealty.ca, Give us a call or text at 905-592-4220 or check us out at The Right Club or other meetup groups that we're usually at as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Dylan. It is awesome working with you as always. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with that, you're either qualifying as a a secondary home or you're needing to qualify it as a long-term rental because lenders don't like that. So I agree with you, right? So it's kind of like, you don't want to flat out tell them it's an Airbnb, but you've got, you know, option A or option B right now. And, and, you know, neither of them are are perfect. So I a hundred percent agree. And I think that is a very lucrative business as well. And it's, and it's harder to finance. So in terms of you talked about Sudbury, you talked about Windsor, and you see deals from from all across the country. And I'm going to put you on the spot because I, I have some of my favorites, but, and this is, this is at the time of recording and that doesn't mean that it's the be all and end all list, but do you have, you know, let's just start with maybe outside of Ontario. So not Ontario. Do you have like a, you know, top select markets that you're seeing deals come in? You're like, oh, this is pretty good. Or you're seeing the refinance from a burr or a flip or, you know, are there markets that you're like, these are really, really good. I've seen a bunch of good deals coming through and these are the good strategies that work in those markets. Yeah, I think that what we're seeing is um, Edmonton, Alberta is definitely a value market right now. And I think when you look at Alberta and you look out east in New Brunswick, um, I can't say no much about Nova Scotia, let's say New Brunswick and Alberta as two markets. What is so attractive is, you know, people think at first it's the price point. The price point is the first thing that gets you looking at those markets, but that, it's actually really the landlord tenant relations in those provinces are a lot more lenient than what we have here in Ontario. So the process of evicting someone for not paying rent is not a one year dragged out process when you're in Alberta, right? It's a lot easier to get those evictions um, passed essentially. So I think that's what's making people um, a lot more comfortable investing in those provinces, right? Because they're saying, okay, you know, I can turn over tenants faster, things like that. So I'd say like Edmonton, Alberta is definitely one where people are doing uh, bigger multifamily projects, right? You're buying something where it's 20 units, things like that. That turnover process can be a lot faster. Now that works both ways, right? In Ontario, if you have a building where all 30 units need to be turned over, that's going to be reflected in the value of the purchase price. But now in Alberta, when it's a lot easier to turn over these units, that that doesn't kill the value as quickly, right? So it kind of goes both ways. I, I think, you know, we've had a few clients where they've started investing out west and they've actually relocated out west. So we had a couple where they lived in Milton, they bought a couple of duplexes, a fourplex in Edmonton. They said, you know what? 
let's get out of Milton, let's completely relocate out there and let's really hit the ground running. So we've seen that happen. And then um, same thing with like Moncton, New Brunswick, St. John's, New Brunswick, just a lot of people going after the bigger multifamily in those areas where you can get them at a hundred thousand in the door or maybe even less, things like that. And um, yeah, there's opportunity, but um, in terms of like favorite market or things like that, I think I'm still more hyper-focused in Ontario but, you know, for the listeners like myself, I live in Hamilton. One thing I found really attractive about Edmonton was that you can get a flight direct Hamilton to Edmonton for like less than $100 on a lot of days. And that time it takes to get out there is very similar to the time it would take you in Hamilton to drive to Sudbury. So you might as well go look at, you know, that, that's just as attainable mm-hmm. of a market from distance perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because like those are the two markets that I've been talking to a lot of my students about is, you know, it, more so in New Brunswick. Uh, but you know, if, if they're looking at, at Western Canada, Edmonton as well, but you know, there are some, some concerns I have, right? Like you you looked at, you know, we look at what happened in 2015, the oil and gas industry, like it's, it's a lot more cyclical, uh, and the cycles are a lot quicker with the ups and downs versus in Ontario. Like everything has a up, everything has a down. I mean, we're probably due for, for something soon. Um, I don't see it necessarily being horrible for Ontario, but you know, when, when we see the effect of, of all the money printing and and potentially what's going to happen, you know, post pandemic with, uh, you know, who knows what the government's going to do to try to slow things down. You know, usually there are going to be some areas that are going to be affected more than others. So just to keep that in mind, to go back into the, the past and you look and see what happened in 08, 09, 2015 to, to those markets. What about in Ontario? Yeah, in Ontario, Sudbury has been the hotspot for our clients, at least for the last, you know, year and a half, two years. Then there's the smaller markets, the North Bay, you know, if you want to be just aside Sudbury, you know, and you can look at places like North Bay. I like Sarnia a lot, still have a couple properties out there. I find it's a really stable rental market. Problem with Sudbury, or sorry, with Sarnia is there's not a lot of inventory. It's pretty small, right? So Sudbury, I think is, is one of the better ones for sure. But I have, um, I have like, you know, some of my staff who are looking and they're in certain price points. And I was just going through a list of on matrix, you know, the real estate portal, of, you know, every single multi family in Ontario, and let's go from cheapest to most expensive. And, you know, there's a lot of variance in price point in these small towns where you'll see a fourplex in one very small town sell for 800,000. And then you'll see a fourplex in another really small, small town, 20 minutes away that's listed for 475. Right. So I think in these smaller markets, there's a lot of opportunity. I think about Port Colburn, Ontario, when I bought there, you know, I bought a fourplex there for 275,000. Then like a year and a half ago, I bought a fourplex there off market for 240,000 as well. So I didn't feel good walking through those properties. I still don't feel good driving in the neighborhoods, but the numbers have been like astronomical on what it's been to renovate them, turn them around. And if you look at, you know, what the government pays people per month and things like that, like a thousand dollars a month rent, is pretty much like attainable for anybody, it seems like across the board. So if you're getting things under 500,000, you're getting 4,000 plus in rental income. Uh, those are good places to go if you're willing to go. But then if you get to a place like I am, you know, I'm more about systems. You know, I don't need the biggest cash flow. I have like a, you know, a mortgage business. I have like a lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. It's really just where is it going to be easier, where I have people in place, all that kind of stuff. And I can just rip through more transactions kind of thing. Um, and I think about other things. Like when I invest now, I think about, where is a good neighborhood? Maybe my kids or somebody in my family might want to live in the future. And with the real estate prices, that's something I think about too, because you might be passing this down, not for wealth, but for just an actual roof over someone's head and your family kind of thing. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, like sometimes just even single family properties are going to be huge. A, they're a lot easier to sell because you've got, you know, a wide, wider pool of people that are interested. Mm -hmm. But B, you know, having, having a detached, I, I think in the, in the very long run, as, as prices continue to go up from a long-term standpoint, it's going to be harder and harder to afford those. And so you, you bring some great points. What do you think? I mean, obviously right now the rates are, you know, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but the rates are at an all-time low and, you know, at some point they're, they're talking about, about raising them. We're, we've got some, some inflation, obviously, probably a lot more than we've ever experienced. Everything is costing a lot of money. They are talking about, you know, the government talking about raising the rates at some point uh, to slow some of that stuff down. Um, what insights can you share for somebody listening to this, uh, you know, on, on what your thoughts are? Yeah, so a lot of media speculation. So I think when it comes to the media, I wish we can trust them and, you know, hang on every word. But unfortunately, you know, a lot of times we see, you know, a lot of manipulation and things like that, right? So if you look at what's been happening, there's been a lot of attention, a lot of hype on interest rate increases. And, you know, a lot of these different banks have had their top economists give projections and things like that. And of course, there was one economist from Scotiabank who predicted, you know, eight variable rate increases. And of course, the most aggressive prediction of all these different predictions is the one that, you know, every media is running with, obviously, right? So you have all these banks who have essentially adjusted their fixed rates upwards, right? Now we're seeing almost like a full percent difference between fixed rates and variable. And then there's all these media outlets saying, hey, you should take the fixed rate now. So they're asking people to voluntarily increase their interest rate by 1%. Well, that sounds like a really profitable opportunity for one side of the party, right? Now, there's another way to look at it, which is just, what does this actually mean? So if you look historically in Canada, in the last decade, there's only been about 11 variable rate changes at all. Now, that doesn't mean they're increases. Some of them have been down, downward trends, right? So it, on average, it averages in the last decade about one rate change per year. And at most, you'll see those increase by about 0.25. So if you just kind of like break that down for the average person, a variable rate increase equates to about a $13 increase for every 100000 you have in mortgage. So if you're the average person, you have a $500,000 mortgage, that's about every variable rate increase is about a $65 increase in your mortgage payment. So let's say, you know, we did see something unprecedented and saw five variable rate increases in a short period of time. That's a mortgage payment for the average person going up $325 a month. Based you know, that's 500 grand based on 500 grand. And that's, you know, if we had five increases, so I guess my view on that is like, yeah, a lot of people live tight. A lot of people live paycheck to paycheck. Do I think anyone's losing their house over that? I really don't. I think that maybe you're not going out for dinner twice a month as a result of that. Maybe you're getting a less expensive car. Maybe you're foregoing one recreational sporting activity. Like there's a lot of different things that you can do to make up $325 per month. So at this point, am I overly concerned about it? No. What I would, you know, caution people is, just be careful about going into these fixed rate products that come with these nasty, expensive penalties, right? Because the worst thing is you want to break your mortgage to access equity. Okay, you know, you may have a $30,000 penalty, right? We've seen clients with $40,000 penalties, things like that to break these mortgages. The penalty cost is a huge cost, but in addition, it's the opportunity cost that you'll lose by actually not taking action. You'll say, you know what? I don't want to pay a $35,000 penalty, so I'm going to forego 
this venture that's going to potentially bring me a lot more money in the future. Right. So there's two different burns associated with that. So I'd say, you know, am I overly concerned about the interest rates? I'm really not. I do have concerns about Canadian real estate like everybody else, um, but the interest rates are definitely not a source of that concern. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here and pause the podcast to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done in complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have. You can also reach out to him Instagram, which is at Blackjack Contracting Inc. And like he says, he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives. So when you have Blackjack on your side, the house always wins. I will also add that there is currently a ban as of April 4th on new permits. So he will still actively work to the law's extent and actively work with investors to get projects planned out for when the ban is lifted. So that way you're not necessarily waiting and waiting and waiting. So guys, 100%, I recommend Blackjack Contracting. I will say that finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the Burr strategy. And now back to the show. Okay. All right. No, that's good. I mean, it's because uh, I, I get that question a lot too. Like from a birth perspective, I mean, it's, it, it makes no sense to go fix because you're going to refinance, you're going to break it. You don't want to pay fees. So, you know, variable is, is what I have with, I think most of my properties, except for maybe my primary, because because Matt actually covers that part. Uh, but everything else, I like the flexibility of being able to do what I want with them. And if you want to refi or for whatever reason you want to sell, like you're not paying a fortune on breaking these fees. But I, I do agree with you. Like that's something that they they want people to pay that extra percent because they are going to make money and, and banks are in the business to make money and, and be profitable. Um, what are there things that you, are you hearing that might be coming and, and happening and, and changes potentially coming to the financing industry? Uh, nothing like we're not seeing a lot. Of, I mean, there, there's some stuff that, um, you know, that may be coming that's like off the record that I, that I can't say. Right. But you know, there are some things where I think one thing that you can expect is you can probably expect more banks to join the broker channel. So right now, if you're a mortgage agent, you know, we have access to, you know, TD Bank, Scotiabank, Meridian Credit Union, a whole host of lenders, about 50 lenders that, you know, they're not, they don't have retail banking operations. So most people have not heard of these banks, but you know, there's some other ones like RBCs, BMOs, CIBCs that um, don't operate in the broker channel. So I think what you can expect is 
more banks joining the broker channel because they're seeing that the appetite of Canadians, you're, you're seeing a huge change towards fixed rate or variable rates. People are having now a bigger appetite for variable rates. Also, people are having a bigger appetite for going through a mortgage agent versus directly in their banking institution. And as a result, more banks are probably going to come through on the broker channel. I think that's one thing we're definitely going to see um, in the near future. And then the other thing that we're seeing more of is uh, there's a huge appetite for commercial lending on residential, what is traditionally viewed as residential properties. So we're saying fourplexes, triplexes, things like that. As people continue to build these portfolios, like seven, eight, nine, ten properties, I think we're going to see more niche credit unions come to the market with good lending products. Because so we're seeing some of them come out, but they're very location specific. They'll say, hey, you know, we'll finance your duplex, triplex, fourplexes commercially based on your strong cash flows, but we'll only do it in Hamilton, London, Windsor, we won't do it in North Bay, Sudbury, you know, places like that. So I think you're going to see a lot more credit unions coming to the table with commercial lending products just to um, support this growing, growing pool of investors because there's, you know, it's growing like crazy every single year, I'm sure as you know. Yeah. Okay. So there's two questions because I want to talk about that, that you, what you just mm -hmm. mentioned with the increase in, in, uh, in investors. But before we get into that, is there a reason? Because I find, you know, many mortgage brokers out there, you know, they go to like the, obviously the A lenders first and they go to like, you know, the B lenders, Equitable Bank and whatnot. Do you think it's important for somebody, an investor to go to the credit union themselves to establish the relationship or is it better for a mortgage broker to do that? And, you know, why or why not? So it's a good question. Um, what you'll learn in banking, specifically in commercial banking, and you know, even not even just commercial banking, like literally all types of banking, is it's not about it, like it's it's about the institution, but it's also about who you talk to at that institution. So I can go to BMO and speak to one person in commercial banking, and I can go to BMO and speak to a different person in commercial banking, and they both have different experience levels. They're both going to give me different answers, and know what? They both have different. Um, leniency with their underwriting department. So somebody who's a newer commercial agent at BMO might not be allowed the same flexibility to make executive decisions that a more experienced commercial banking manager may have, right? So it's about the people, right? They talk about real estate, you know, it's about the money, the people and the deal. In lending, it's about the people too. It's like, who is actually the right contact? Because, you know, I can name drop a credit union I work a lot with right now called Libro Credit Union. And I've tried to work with them in the past, but it wasn't until I had the right person there supporting us where we're able to get all these deals approved and these deals pushed through. So hopefully, you know, your mortgage broker has done that grunt work where they have the contacts in the institution. So you don't have to be the one to go through it. Um, but I would say that's, that's really the most important thing is finding the right people. Does your broker have access to the right people? And you'll see like there's different stages, right? When I first started, I was just trying to get leads, trying to get people approved. Now we're at the point where we work with, you know, 800 mortgages a year for investors. Now we're like, okay, as our investors grow, we need to grow with them. We need to be able to do the big apartment buildings, all that kind of stuff so that there's always a solution because naturally that's where our clientele is going. And naturally that's, that's where we're going as investors. Right. So I think it's about, it's about the people more so than it is about the institution, just because there's a lot of gatekeepers in these banks. So it's hard to get to the right person for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I know a lot of investors that have had, you know, a lot of success just going to the credit unions themselves and establishing that relationship. But like you said, right, it's like if, if your broker has the relationships already built and they have the connections, that's great. And if not, you know, I don't think it's a horrible idea to start establishing a relationship in addition to your relationship with your mortgage broker, but with the credit union, maybe a local credit union, the right person there, and you might have access to additional things that you might not have otherwise. Anything that you want to add to that? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You know, there's like what I usually say to mortgage brokers who I coach, right? Because we have about 12 agents we brought in the brokerage is like, you need to know what the banks that you don't have access to are offering, right? So there's some niche products at RBC, for example, that I put a lot of clients through because we don't have access to them and they're great products. And, and usually if you're able to help them at a different institution, it really just puts them back in the game to do more transactions with you, right? Your clients are trying to do more real estate deals and you're trying to fund more real estate deals. So it's really a win-win partnership. Absolutely. For sure. Okay. So let's, let's go back to the other thing that you mentioned that, you know, it feels and it seems, and I think it is that more and more investors are getting into this game. Uh, I was reading something recently and it was like 25% of like, and I'm probably wrong, but like 25% of of the transactions that have happened recently were investor-based, you know, throughout the pandemic and whatnot. Maybe, maybe you just share more insights because I know you're closer to it. You see it. What's happening in that, in that world? Yeah, the popularity of real estate investing continues to grow like crazy. I think this Gen Z generation is pretty smart. <laughs> I think they're a lot smarter than they get credit for. Uh, what I'm noticing is what's cool now is to be an entrepreneur. So the entrepreneurship is the is the new cool thing, like the Gary Vaynerchuks and the Grant Cardone's. Like these are the people everyone's looking up to now, which is good. These are good idols to have compared to maybe whatever rapper we were watching growing up, Nelly with the Band-Aid. I'm trying to think of my, my youth right now. <laughs> but um, so, you know, I think there's definitely more. And, you know, sometimes I'll be in conversation with my friends and they'll be saying, oh, it's so hard to buy a house. It's impossible to buy a house. But then at the same time too, I have a client who's 23 years old who just bought seven properties in North Bay and was doing birth strategy and rinse and repeating over and over. So I think that, um, you know, every year it's it's growing. The other thing that's growing is content around real estate. So you're seeing every investor now wants to be on the podcast. They want to share that podcast with their family and friends. And now this is really rippling like crazy, right? And the whole thing with real estate investing was it was a smart thing to do for a long time. And now it's looking like it's a necessary thing to do, right? And, you know, it might be that. I love that. I love that you're you're bang on because like where else are you going to make that kind of income uh, or net worth increase? Like you're not going to do it from job that is barely keeping up with inflation. Yeah. You know, we had a staff member who just bought a property for 425,000 last year and you know, they bought it insured. They're going to, they lived on one unit and rented out the other, like just a very practical, smart thing to do. We just did a refinance just a little bit over a year later, just appraised at $655,000. So that's over $200,000 increase in valuation. There was no renovation done, nothing like that. So where do you find that return? Right. And, you know, it might be a different asset class. It might be Bitcoin. It might be something else in the future. But in terms of right now, when you can grasp the Burr strategy and the concept of owning a cash flowing asset for free or close to for free, and you have the principal pay down and the cash flows and you don't even need the appreciation at that point. Right. It's a very, very safe strategy. We know our government is very pro immigration right? What that's going to do to the demand on real estate's only growing. We're all experiencing the pain of the construction costs. You know, I remember when a basement renovation cost 25,000, now it's costing 60,000, 70,000, depends who you talk to. So there's inflation in all areas and it's one of the few ways to kind of keep pace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, uh, sometimes I'm just surrounded by it. So I'm like, everyone's an investor because that's what I talk about. That's what I live in. I, I breathe real estate investing because I, I just love it. But I think, uh, I think you're right. Like just, you know, more and more people are now 
you know, seeing, listening to podcasts, seeing, you know, other people that they know, hearing other people that they know that are doing well. Um, so you, you talked about uh, immigration and obviously I think the number is like 1.2 million people are coming in the next, what is it, the next year. And then, you know, the Trudeau government has 400 plus thousand people a year. There's not enough inventory. There is a shortage. There is already a shortage. There's going to continue to be a shortage. But you mix that in with, uh, you know, lockdowns and unknowns and all that stuff. So, you know, what are what are your at the end of the day, you know, what are your recommendations for somebody to be able to position themselves properly without having that analysis paralysis, but at the same time, being able to ensure that they can withstand some of the turbulence that I'm sure we're going to experience at some point. To what extent? Who knows? But, you know, what recommendations do you have just so somebody can take action while still protecting themselves? I think the thing that you can do to always essentially mitigate as much risk as possible in your investment is cash flow. So the larger degree of cash flow you have, the more risk you can accommodate. That means the larger risk if there's a vacancy, right? That means the larger risk if your tenant doesn't pay. Um, Also, I think there's more upside on the price, the higher the cash flow is. We've seen it in countless markets, Toronto, Mississauga, Oakville, Burlington, all down the QEW. People typically buy until there's no more cash flow left and then they'll hop to the next city. That seems to be how it goes, right? So if I look at Hamilton, for example, right now, I'm looking at some of the numbers and I can see how a duplex in Hamilton can break even still at a million dollars. So when I see people buying at 700, 750, things like that, yeah, it feels really high. You know, I used to be buying in the city when those those bungalows cost 250,000. Like I remember those days as well, but there's still a case and go higher, but I think cash flow will always set you up right? Um, the shorter term, the project, right? So if you're getting into a project where, you know, there's evictions of tenants that have to take place and you don't even know when the renovation part is even going to get to start. Well, that, that presents a bigger risk because more things will unfold in the market. I don't think we're going to see something where it has like a catastrophic shift in valuations or things like that. But I think more cash flow, the better, and then essentially the shorter term, like the quicker you can turn over the project, the better. That means vacant possession. Um, that means maybe a property that's a little bit closer to you, things like that kind of thing. And then, you know, when it comes to research and knowing your numbers, it's really easy. It's so easy nowadays. All you have to do is say, hey, you know, who invests in North Bay? You'll find 12 podcasts of every young person doing it. They'll all want to talk to you. They'll all want to help you. This is the most collaborative, inviting industry that exists. So you really like, you really can't go wrong. The only thing that really you can do to hurt yourself is overanalyze. You know, like I can tell you having bought like almost 20 properties now, most of my projections can all be done on a napkin still. I'm not checking like 2% vacancy. I'm just not doing that stuff. Like for me, it's not that complicated. It's really like, okay, what's the after repair value? It's somewhere in this range, cool renovation somewhere in this range, cash flow somewhere in this range. If it's green light to all three, that let's proceed kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I've been preaching cash flow since this podcast started. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think, I think everybody that bought on cash flow will, will do well. Last question before the lightning round, what are your thoughts? So in a, in a, you know, maybe of an uncertain market, I always have some reservations with flipping contracts. So somebody buying a condo that might have, you know, a four year time frame, three year time frame, five, whatever, whatever that is, and hoping to flip it or potentially close on it, but in such a, a long time frame of four to five years, thoughts? It's the riskiest investment strategy you can possibly take. I think it's pretty straightforward. When it comes to real estate, there's a few different factors. There's cash flow, there is principal pay down, there is um, 
and there's appreciation and appreciation is the only part of the transaction you can't control, you know, unless it's forced appreciation. But if you're talking about a pre-construction project, there's no forcing of the appreciation in that situation. So if you're going to choose to dictate your entire investment strategy around the one thing that you don't have control over, it's a risky proposition. On the flip side, you can talk to countless people for the last 30 years who have been making so much money in this, in this thing. But so I'd say if, you know, if you definitely are going to do pre-construction, you say, Hey, you know what? I don't have the time, the resources to find an off-market deal to assign. I don't have the cash or the, you know, boring ability to then buy a property. And this is my only route. I would say go towards projects with less units. You don't want to be in the pre-construction project that has 500 units and 50 of you are all trying to assign them at the same time. Try to go to the ones that have maybe 60 units or less, and maybe you won't have as much competition when it is time to assign. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know what, it, it's, it worries me. I think it's a, it's a good play as long as you have other things that you can fall back on in different exit strategies. And you just have to know that, like, like you said, it, it's, it's risky at the point where you need to sign it or have to sign it. You don't know what kind of market you're going to be going into. I mean, you know, go, going back to 2017, a lot of people were closing on the pre-constructions at the same time that Kathleen Wynn had created the whole fair, you know, housing bullshit that she did. Uh, and then she wanted to, you know, like, well, there was, there was a few things and, and it slowed down the market. Uh, at the same time, you know, we were, we were upping the stress test and a lot of people lost a lot of money that were a, not able to close with the difference that were needed or couldn't assign or, you know, so just keep in mind, you've got to, you've got to look at the good and the bad. Every strategy has some level of risk in real estate. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Jacob. So the next part of the podcast is our lightning rounds. I'm going to ask you five questions. You can give me the first answer that comes to mind. Are you ready? Yeah. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Megan Chomut. If you're looking for a great financial advisor to add to your team who actually understands and incorporates real estate as part of your overall plan and gets your money working for you, you can reach out to Megan at meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. And also she's offered for my podcast listeners to provide you with a free customized individualized 90 day game plan for getting ahead. So to get that, go to meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-C-H-O-M-U-T.com forward slash Sarah. And now back to the show. All right. So here's question number one. What is your favorite real estate investing book? Uh, definitely money people deal Stefan Arneo. Um, I got to spend some time with him in Winnipeg before he passed, but um, that book's amazing. And know what, for somebody who had done a lot of joint ventures, when they read that book, I was like, wow, I didn't even think of these like 27 other ways to potentially structure it to accommodate every single situation. So if you're new to real estate investing, that book will definitely give you kind of the solid foundation. All right. Awesome. Question number two, this does not have to be real estate per se. And I don't know if you listen to podcasts, but if you do, do you have a favorite podcast? Definitely London Real with Brian Rose. Um, So, you know, dating back to the beginning of COVID, he was bringing on guests from all ends of the spectrum, which I definitely appreciate. And uh, right now he's been hugely focused on decentralized finance and kind of what's happening in the world of cryptocurrency and you know, it being, you know, an answer to certain inflationary issues that we have country to country. So London Real Brian Rose is definitely, uh, definitely one I tune into. All right. Very cool. Number three, what do you do for fun? Mortgages. <laughs> um, no, no, I do. Uh, I like to do a lot, a lot of different stuff, reading and, you know, kind of uh, reading exercise just to kind of keep myself fresh. But I also like to do kind of uh, 
just outside the box type trips, you know, like I've gone to the Middle East before I've done, you know, ayahuasca in Costa Rica. So I like to kind of like explore like different things uh, outside of this bubble. But when I am here, I'm like work, work, work. And then I try to get out of the country, you know, as much as possible. All right. Very cool. Number four, if you lost everything tomorrow, your money, your properties, your assets, how would you start again? I would jump right back into real estate. I think, you know, I want to actually do a podcast on this topic. The amount of different revenue streams tied to real estate is it's almost like there's so many options. You have to tone yourself down. You know, you could be a real estate agent. You could be a mortgage agent. You can invest in real estate. You can flip, you can assign contracts. You can do a property manager company. You can start a coaching business. Like the opportunities are endless. I would jump right back into real estate and I would hit the ground running again. I think that, you know, no, no matter how high the house prices may look, there's so much opportunity in this industry. All right. Awesome. And last question, number five, if somebody has $50,000, they want to spend that money. How could they best spend it? 50,000. The best thing you can do, um, in my opinion, by far is to go house hack, get in with a minimum down payment, 5%. If you can, if that, if, if your market accommodates the 5% down payment, you know, you might be somebody in a more expensive area, but if you can house hack, live in one unit, rent out one, two or three units and leverage a large loan, with a very small down payment that will pay huge dividends. Amazing. Great answers. Jacob, where can my listeners reach out and find out more? Please reach out to me on Instagram. That's probably the best place at Jacob Perez 10. Send me a DM. There's even like a booking link right in my uh, bio, bio there just to book a call with me. And uh, if you're a new investor, if you're an experienced investor, if you're a new mortgage agent looking to get kind of your business popping, a lot of different things I can help you with. So looking forward to connecting with whoever reaches out. Amazing, Jacob. Thank you for being on the show. It was a pleasure having you on. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid. But as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that work. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step -step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.